Have you ever wanted to discover what's missing in your life? Metaphysics is available to all and is part of your life even if you don't know it. Welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil with Barb Crowley. Together we'll explore the mysteries behind metaphysics and how to use it to have a deeper understanding and advantage in life. And now here's your host, Barb Crowley. Hi, this is Barb Crowley and welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil. Today we're talking to Dr. Stephanie Mines. She is a neuroscientist who has investigated shock and trauma as a survivor, as a professional, a clinical researcher, and a healthcare provider. Dr. Mines has written five books. In addition, she's an award-winning poet. We're going to talk to her about her latest book, The Secret of Resilience, Healing Personal and Planetary Trauma Through Morphogenesis, which is my first question. Um, Well, anyway, Dr. Stephanie Mines, welcome so much to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you here because we, your book right before this book is called We Are All in Shock. And I do feel like we all are. So this is great to have you on the show. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Thanks. My first question is that word I stumbled over, morphogenesis. (laughs) What is that? Well, I have a great story to tell you from an experience I had right before I came on to this call uh, with a gentleman who I was doing a session with and who felt the presence of someone cheering him on uh, as he was struggling with an issue. And he said it was a very odd experience. He had never had anything like this before. And I suggested perhaps it was an ancestor. And he remembered an ancestor who was always, meaning a relative who is now past, who Mm -hmm. always was positive and affirming. And this gentleman had never thought that somebody who had passed on, who was no longer alive, could be actively engaged in his present struggles. But he was, and that's morphogenesis. So the word uh, became popularized by a scientist named Dr. Rupert Sheldrake, who worked extensively with phantom limb syndrome. So that's the experience mm-hmm. that people have when a limb has been amputated, uh, and yet they feel sensation where that limb would have been. That's morphogenesis. It's something that existed that was part of our lives that we experienced, but which is no longer present. But the quality of that presence is still known even when the limb or the individual is no longer there. So now since we're meta, since we're meta um, metaphysics of view through the veil, I have to bring you sideways a little bit. Any chance that that ancestor was there? You know, in spirit was cheering them on. That's the same thing. That's the same oh, thing. Okay, Barb. So it's, that it's beautiful. Even it's it's a memory, or if it's present time, it's it's virtually the same thing. So I I feel that metaphysics and science actually meet, even though mm-hmm. both metaphysics metaphysicians and scientists might disagree. But I feel that they actually meet. And I actually think so too. I just don't think we know enough yet. 
to yeah. see the intersection. <laughs> yeah. well, we haven't learned how to validate sensory experience would be my proposition. Mm-hmm. So um, healing personal and planetary trauma through morphogenesis means that we welcome in the unseen into the healing process. So we welcome in the guardians. We welcome in the spirits of the plants and the unseen beings that are here to help us through this time when we are all in shock. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. And that makes more sense. Definitely makes more sense. Good. Good. Um, And what did you tell them? What did you, you know, what did you tell them? I encourage this gentleman. uh, I encouraged him to reflect further on this. And I encouraged him to integrate the possibility that he had this support from the unseen world. And I will meet with him again to see how that evolved for him. I don't want to ever force uh, an idea onto anyone, uh, but I could suggest it and allow him to be with it. Uh, And I'm very excited to hear where this goes for him. So am I. (laughs) So am I. It must have unnerved him. Um, What is the secret of resilience? The secret. That's a big question, right? (laughs) You wrote a whole book about it. (laughs) It's my favorite question. So the secret of resilience lies within our discovery of the power and the intelligence and the sensory acuity that every single one of us has and that brought us here to this present moment. So my research is into embryogenesis, into uh, particularly prenatal brain development, neurodevelopment, as it evolves through the challenging experiences of prenatal life. And what I have discovered, and other scientists have discovered as well, is that the embryo fuels her own passage, despite the Odyssean challenges that we encounter, that everyone encounters in prenatal life. And when we discover how we did that, that's the secret of resilience. Have we discovered it? (laughs) Well, we have to discover it personally. Uh, I I have discovered it for myself. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And everyone who studies with me or works with me discovers it. I aim for them to discover it. So even though I'm known as an expert in trauma, I'm actually not so interested in trauma. I am more interested in how we address trauma, how we deal with trauma. So the trauma, whatever it might be, or the shock, which is more overwhelming than trauma, is a challenge to human development. But we meet that challenge. And it's in discovering how we meet those challenges, and each one of us meets it uniquely, that is the secret of resilience. And that is really the secret to how we solve these unprecedented conundrums that we are living with now every day. What about, uh, well, I have about five questions I want to ask at the same time. Let me back up and say, how did you discover yours? That's a a great question, Barb. So I discovered mine. It's been an evolving process of discovering it at deeper and deeper levels. 
But I would say that I first discovered the secrets to my own resilience even before I became a neuroscientist. And I discovered that inner resilience through what appeared to be spontaneous awarenesses and memories uh, that I later was able to validate that revealed some of the difficulties of my prenatal life and my birth uh, that I remembered independent of anyone telling me any stories. And this is frequently the truth because individuals remember their own truth. And we often turn to our parents or family members to give us information that we don't realize we already have. So long before I became a neuroscientist, I had these spontaneous memories and I tried to integrate them. At that point in my development, thankfully, I was mainly functioning as a writer and poet, which meant that I wrote all of this down. Uh, and I put it into stories, I put it into poems. I didn't think of it as science. But then when I did become a scientist uh, about 20 years later, uh, then I realized that those early experiences were scientifically accurate. You, you described yourself as a wounded healer. And yes. why was that? What is that? Yeah, so a wounded healer is someone who offers the world the treasures of what she has discovered as a result of her own really difficult and alchemizing experience. So I'm a wounded healer because of the nature of the dysfunction in my family of origin, the violence and sexual abuse that I experienced, uh, being the daughter of a veteran who returned uh, from war with combat shock and who perpetrated the contamination of his own traumatic brain injury and his own uh, PTSD and much more elevated combat shock on family members, primarily me and my mother. And it is how I resurrected myself from those experiences and stopped repeating them in my relationships. That's what qualifies me as a wounded healer. And how, like you say, you remember, but I have no memories of um, really my own child, early childhood. Most of my memories are trauma, you know. And when I say trauma, I, I got sick and went to the hospital, you know, things like this. Those things I remember, but I don't remember. Certainly, don't remember uh, before birth. You know what we? I told you a few things before we came on, but I was told those things. I have no memory at all of before birth, or I don't really know that I have a memory. I have one memory, but that was a, a near drowning incident where a memory came up. But that—that that was it. I have no memories early. Well, uh, most people would concur. And because of that, I've developed a template, which I call the rediscovery journey, which is a construct that helps you remember. So when people assume that they don't remember, which most people make that assumption, they're operating cognitively, they're operating rationally. But we remember in a sensory way. In other words, we remember through sensation, through feeling, 
through non-cognitive experience. And I have created a way that guides people into that remembering. Uh, remember meaning bringing back into the members of your body. And I will tell you, with without arrogance, I hope, with true humility, that every single person who experiences the rediscovery journey with me remembers. Wow. <laughs> That's going to be interesting. <laughs> um, now, you said in your book, the vagus nerve comes in within the first um, within the first trimester, isn't it? Absolutely. First, that, yeah. Actually, which is the, the shocking. Few weeks, yes. Yeah. Um, which is shocking. That's the longest nerve in the body, really. But it's everything. <laughs> it's everything. Yes. And that is true of all function, actually. And this is one of my major points, is that really within the first trimester, the prenatal origins of health are established, including most definitely the insertion of the 12 cranial nerves of which the vagus nerve is one. So the social engagement system, which is the system of orientation uh, and how we interact and have relationships, that is all established physiologically very early in life. And it's important for people to realize that because that allows us to look at these original impulses and trace them to their source. And once they're traced, can they be released? Yes, that's the next most important question, Barb. And that is another aspect of what I provide and illustrate in my book is how those early imprints, the ones that we have outgrown, the ones that were compensations for what we really needed, how they can be repatterned, renegotiated, and how we can orient in a much more present way and a much more spontaneous and multi-optional way to the world. And that's what we need right now. We need mm -hmm. to face these unprecedented challenges with what I call that original brilliance. That's the secret of resilience, original brilliance. It's the sensory intelligence that everyone has. I'm not just speaking of specific people. This is birthright for everyone to face daunting challenges and come up with indigenous, somatic, instinctual intelligence. It's a lot to live up to. <laughs> well, and, it's, actually, and, it's actually simpler than we think. Okay. Um, so this is what we, this is us in the womb. This is what we come in with, this original brilliance. Yes. Is what yes. you're saying. Yes. You know, that that we know, do we know where we're going? You know, like before we get here, to, you know, do we know where we're going and what we're going I would to say, I would say we experience? We, we know and we also keep learning. We learn in utero. The embryo is a learning machine. We are learning as we develop about the world, the people, the conditions we're about to enter. So let's say in China where they had a one-person, one-child program. And nobody wanted girls. What did that do? 
to their psyche, basically. That That is a, a big question that I would defer to my colleague, uh, Dr. Spring Chung, who I work closely with, uh, to answer. Uh, that's not a question I could answer briefly or simply here, uh, but it is a question worth asking, Barb. Can you give me a hint of what it'd say? <laughs> well, I think it would point to what has happened in China. And uh, I am being very cautious here uh, in, in speaking to this, but I would say it is a hint of what has happened in China to their evolution of consciousness there. But again, I would defer to my friend, Dr. Spring Chung. You might want to have her on the show. She is also an author um, and she is part of uh, many of my programs uh, who's indigenous Chinese Taoist. Uh, and, and I think she could speak to that question with authority. But how, okay, let's, let's take an American woman that, um, you know, they're, they're, well, nowadays we can find out, you know, male or female, but let's say they want to have a, a boy and they're going to have a girl. And, and um, my guess is, you know, I've always thought, can the embryo is the embryo listening as they discuss, I am so disappointed. <laughs> and what does this do? How does the person, well, I guess it's by personality too, how they react to having heard that basically they're not wanted the way they're coming into the world? That is a question I can answer because I have served people who had that experience. I do address it. I actually provide a case study along those lines in We Are All in Shock uh, of a woman who I worked closely with who was expected to be a boy, who her parents wanted to be a boy, and how that played out in her life. And uh, your suggestion, is the embryo listening? Yes, the embryo is listening. So being aware of the intelligence of the embryo is uh, definitely part of my platform. And something I teach, I, I teach it for people who want to become parents. I also teach it for people who serve families and children. And I teach it for all healthcare providers uh, and everyone who I believe should be aware of our earliest history in all healthcare delivery. For a while, people were aware, you know, would be careful. And then that went away. It was almost like a fad. I don't know what happened to that, but I do remember it, you know, where, where they'd play music and they'd have yeah. Mozart and, you know, they had a whole kit. You could buy a whole kit. Yeah. yeah. You spend those nine months almost um, teaching your child, your future child, your embryo, you know, um, for nine months before they were born, they were in training in a way. Yeah, I remember that as well. And you're absolutely right. And what happened that we lost that awareness? Uh, I am definitely here to reinstall it and to awaken to it, uh, particularly in the context of a climate changing world. I would love to find out those kids that went through that period of time. How did they turn out? Were they musicians? Uh, that would be, Did they that, hate music? 
that would be a great research study. There are studies in unwantedness. There's the there there are quite famous studies uh, that I've used extensively. Uh, there's the famous Prague unwantedness study that explores the impacts of unwantedness on children. Uh, and so you are suggesting a research study, which I hope someone picks up on in the opposite uh, syndrome, which is the syndrome of being welcomed and trained almost to be uh, active and intelligent. Can you train somebody to be who they didn't come in as? So, you know, like we're talking about kids for for you younger folks, you know? <laughs> they were honestly kids where people would play Mozart, you know, to their to their stomach, really, you know. Well, that's a love of music, and that's yeah. fabulous music. But what if they don't come in with music in their, you know, aura? Well, you know what the, I mean? the intention of doing something like playing Mozart when you're pregnant I don't believe, Barb, is so much to invoke a love of music, though that might happen. So Mozart, Mozart's music is known to be brain-stimulating music. So mm -hmm. what that prenatal experience was doing for those children was not so much directing them towards music. It was more directing them towards their own development. It was enhancing development. And even now... I know because I play it sometimes you can find playlists that are brain stimulating playlists. So you can use them if you're working on a project or you're uh, studying for an exam. Uh, and much of that music is Mozart. So that's why people were playing Mozart during that period. As you can tell, I didn't get any Mozart. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't get any. And And isn't there too something with the music to the heartbeat? Something about the the uh, you know the the heartbeat and the um, the timing of well, the of the music. The embryo is extremely sensitive to sound, and actually, I open up my new book, "The Secret of Resilience," with the hearing and sound experience of the developing embryo, uh, and so the mother's heartbeat and the variations in that heartbeat and everything actually that is happening for the mother's nervous system is the soundscape for the developing embryo. And you actually, you talk about the soundscape in your book. I do. You want to yeah. talk more about that? Well, the soundscape concept actually was introduced to me uh, and by the incredible research of uh, Dr. Tomatis, who developed the Tomatis method. So when I was doing my research with uh, young children with autism, I came across the Tomatis method, which is very much based on the mother's heartbeat and the sounds or the soundscape of prenatal life. Uh, and then my colleague, uh, Claire Dean, who is a sound healer, uh, reinvigorated that awareness to me. And as a result of that, I did more research into the embryogenesis of the ear and how the hearing capacity evolves based on the sounds that we experience prenatally. Uh, so I deliver that in the first chapter of my book, The Secret of Resilience, uh, which explores my own soundscape and how 
those kind of sensory experiences become the prenatal origins of health. Um, there are, you know, you brought up autism, and um, there's such a um, prevalence of autism now, and there hasn't been in the past. Um, and in my memory past, even, you know, I mean, we're not talking 100 years ago, we're talking pretty recent past. I don't know if you can address that or not. Well, I'd like to speak to uh, two other books that I wrote that do address that topic and that are related to one another and blend with my whole understanding of how we respond to trauma and shock. So when I was uh, doing research with young children with autism, which I document in my book, New Frontiers in Sensory Integration, I discovered that children of veterans were, and this statistic will alarm you, children of veterans are 80% more likely to be diagnosed with autism or learning disorders than the general population. And I could not avoid that glaring statistic. So that led me to my next book, which is They Were Families, How War Comes Home. So the impact of service in the military on children frequently produce an environment prone to neurodiversity or autism, learning challenges in the children who are experiencing secondary re-traumatization. So we want to look at that as we face the wars that are taking place right now and the warlike environment that we're living in with this accelerated polarization uh, and divisiveness within the American culture, certainly, uh, not to mention other cultures. And we want to see that compassionately from a parental or mammalian standpoint and begin to act proactively for our children and the children of the future. That's really my intention and my motive uh, in many regards as a mother and a grandmother. My motive is to do what I can to create an environment that will allow our children to thrive and the children of the future to thrive. And in order to do that, uh, it is my premise that we need to awaken to our original brilliance. How would a veteran do that? So let's say he's gone to Afghanistan and and served a tour or two and then comes home and starts a family. You don't know that he knows that he's bringing this trauma to his family. That's really correct. And I grew up in such an environment myself, so I know whereof I speak. And it does require a, a deep inquiry, and it requires the appropriate support, which is unfortunately not so easily available within the Western medicine traditions, but it is available. And sometimes in my experience, I can I can document, and I have documented in my book, They Were Families, How War Comes Home, uh, what happens when family members are proactive to create this kind of healing environment in the home itself. 
Uh, and in fact, I am getting ready to organize a symposium on this topic that will start uh, poignantly on September 11th. And from September 11th to September 15th, I will be conducting a week-long symposium on this topic uh, on Humanity Rising. And when people go to my website, they'll get the information about that. It's a completely free symposium, I might mention. Mm -hmm. uh, bringing up 9-11, those kids, like we're really looking at the embryos, not the kids. I mean, the kids that went through that time period. I can see in, uh, um, from the East Coast, and I can see it in some my family members still, um, 23 years later, that I can see triggers on them, that there's PTSD there. And they were in a classroom at the time. But um, one of them, her friend said, my father works there. And, and the other one said, and they were kids, said, oh, he'll be okay. Well, he never came home. You know, he was caught in that. So I can see to this day the trauma that those kids went through. Um, but the ones in the embryo, yes, as, it, as we went through that, what happened there? What, well, how study, are they? That study has been done, actually, Barb. So my colleague, the brilliant uh, scientist, Dr. Rachel Yehuda, has done that study on the impact uh, on embryos, uh, the research that she did with the women who were pregnant during 9-11 and whose partners never came home. Uh, she has done that longitudinal study and it's available, Dr. Rachel Yehuda. She's also done the same kind of research uh, for Holocaust survivors as well. Has, has anybody done the study for, let's say, people in the area that both their parents, they didn't actually lose anything, anybody, but the chaos, the upset, the, you know, the trauma, really, of that, that period and what happened, you know, what happened to those embryos? I don't know that that study has been done, but it would be a great study. Barb, you're really a scientist so i think except i want everybody else to do it <laughs> you know i would love to hear these things i want everybody else to do it <laughs> well curiosity which you seem to have an abundance of is one of the most important attributes of a scientist in fact uh curiosity cannot coexist with despair so your curiosity is your antidepressant you know, we'll have to talk about that a little bit more because I've I've had trouble with uh, depression in my life, a lot of it. Well, I was. You know what? Your curiosity. I would venture that your curiosity got you out of it. Um, something got me out, but then again, it's a depression. Most people understand this. It's like a roller coaster. You know, sometimes you're in, sometimes you're out. <laughs> But you know what? I want to take a break right now. And when we come back, I want to talk about things like the rivers of splendor and some of the other things that you have in the book on things that you can do with this, as well as some of your case studies that are pretty fascinating. So oh, we'll yeah. be right back.
Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. One thing's for certain. Life is uncertain. Do you navigate the unknowns? Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com to sign up for psychic readings and classes with Barb Crowley. You can schedule one-to-one sessions with Barb for personal and relationship counseling, pet communication, mediumship, career and business direction, or sign up for one of her classes. Everyone has answers through the metaphysical plane, but they need help to access them. Get the help you need today. Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Metaphysics, a view through the veil with Barb Crowley. To reach the live show, please call into 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, we're back with Dr. Stephanie Mines, and we've been talking about her new book, um, The Secret of Resilience, Healing Personal and Planetary Trauma Through Morphogenesis. Um, and, And one thing I wanted to ask her about, I want her to talk about on the show, is the rivers of splendor. So if you want to explain to us what that is, it's fascinating. I've tried it already. Uh, you know, from your book, I tried it. And you can feel it. You can feel stuff. Pretty wild. But go ahead. Explain it to my audience. <laughs> Thank you, Barb. Yes. So I had the great good fortune uh, at a turning point in my life of meeting a woman named Mary Eno Burmeister. And uh, she is a woman who brought the art of compassion from Japan to the U.S. So born in Japan, but raised in Seattle, uh, Washington, uh, Mary Eno married Gil Burmeister uh, and came from Japan. Uh, So let me backtrack a bit here. Uh, So Mary grew up in Seattle, outside of Seattle, Uh, And during World War II, the infamous and horrific period of internment camps for the Japanese uh, did put her parents and her family, she and her sisters, into this horrific situation uh, that traumatized the entire Japanese population uh, of America uh, during this despicable time in our history. And after the camps were liberated, Mary returned to Japan, where she met a man named Jiro Murai, who imparted to her the ancient art of compassion known as Jinshin, which translates as the art of compassion. And Mary, after Mary and Gil Burmeister returned to the U.S., and I had the privilege of meeting her and studying with her for over 20 years. She is now uh, an ancestor. And when Mary passed away, I was bereft, but I also was deeply curious about the origins of this system. And I discovered those origins in 
what are known in Oriental medicine as the rivers of splendor or extraordinary meridians. So the rivers of splendor form prenatally. And just as we have 12 ordinary meridians that evolve postnatally, we have the origins of that system prenatally in the eight rivers of splendor. So these rivers can be activated, stimulated, regenerated through touch. So they also can be regenerated in acupuncture, but through touch, they are stimulated at a much more gentle pace. So that makes them perfect for the resolution of shock and trauma. So I have adapted everything that I learned from Mary in regard to touch, specifically for the rivers of splendor and the resolution of trauma. And I include that in everything that I do. So I wove this awareness into my research as a neuroscientist and an embryologist fusing uh, Western and Eastern medicine uh, so that we get a holistic approach to health, to well-being, to mental health, and to prenatal uh, and early postnatal care. And I have taught uh, these gentle applications throughout the world. And now, as we are living in a time of overwhelming shock and trauma daily proven by the increase in uh, depression and panic and agitation, the mental health crises, uh, our Surgeon General just articulated a an epidemic of loneliness. There's so much isolation and fragmentation in our culture. I am bringing these gentle self-care applications forward so that people can restore, regenerate. Regenerative health is my mantra. My passion is to really convey, transmit the arts of regenerative health, which are perfect for these times and have their roots in ancient healing systems. So there are many examples, and I'm happy to share some of them. Uh, I just I'd love to. Yeah. yeah, I just shared actually uh, with my colleagues uh, in the Northeast uh, resources for respiratory health because we are being inundated. This is very much a, a climate crisis situation. Uh, the the Northeast. Uh, it hasn't hit us here in the Northwest yet, but in the North. It hit us in Denver. You mean the fires from Canada? Yes. Oh, you're feeling yes. it in Denver. It, we had it bad in Denver before they did, yeah. Okay. But we had it. Our air quality was about 180. Theirs was 300. Oh, my so God. So just to give yeah. you an idea. Yeah. 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 So I uh, taught and uh, provided illustrations of how we uh, invigorate and regenerate the lung meridian, the respiratory function. So if you just bring the pads of your fingers, and it doesn't matter which fingers, um, actually I'm using three fingers right now to the base of my collarbone. So mm -hmm. the medial or central aspect of the collarbone has kind of a knobby uh, promontory so just under there, under that bony structure, 
place fingertips there. And then the fingertips of the other hand go to the base of the ribs. Um, and I don't know if you'll be showing this at all, but I can um, point. It's good these. for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, she's showing me on, on the Zoom, you know, what she's doing. And yeah, I so will I'm placing yeah. the palm of my hand I'll at the base that. of my ribs and my mm -hmm. fingertips at the knobby outpost of the clavicle. And just these two and sites. And it's best to do this standing up, right? No, you can do it lying down. You can do it seated. Mm -hmm. I just happen to be standing. Um, okay. You can do this anywhere. And that's the beauty of this system. You can do mm -hmm. it anywhere. And you can do this on both sides or just on one side if that's all you have time for. One side will release the other side. And as you're holding these areas, you want to tune into the way your breath changes. You want to notice the tissue on which your hands are resting and how that tissue may change in response to your touch. So for me, for instance, my breath automatically deepens, the tissue softens. And I can feel a ubiquitous dropping down, a global decompression of my entire structure, uh, loosening within my joints as they soften. And then I can feel a pulsation starting to amplify between these two sites, becoming quite a rich, round pulsation. And... I can feel that my breathing capacity is absolutely expanded just from this simple touch. And this is resting. This is not pushing. This is not pushing. This is not rubbing. This is not tapping. This is not massaging. You're just resting. Yeah. You're just resting there. You're just being present. But in being present, you are listening. So you are listening to your body and your body is listening to you. Mm -hmm. I feel calmness. I like it. <laughs> I, yes, yeah, I feel these, calmness. These are wonderful practices, Barb. They are so immediate in their benefits. And I can tell you, as someone who has struggled with respiratory issues my entire life, I was born with bronchial pneumonia and I had asthma for the majority of my life. I'm completely free of it now. I know how to deal with respiratory challenges. We've had them here in the Northwest. We will continue to have them. That is absolutely one of the health consequences of climate crisis. Uh, for the respiratory system, I can also suggest another incredibly simple application, which is just wrapping the ring finger with the fingers of the other hand. You're just cocooning the finger. And when you do that, you actually are sending a message to both the lung and the large intestine meridians. So you are inviting the respiratory function and the letting go function. So you're detoxifying simply by holding the ring finger. And you can do that anywhere, anytime. And these are resources that I convey in my books, all my books. And in your book, you actually have a whole, a whole uh, page on where to touch and and 
when to touch, really. Yeah, and I, I tried some of them. I did try some of them. But this, when you first learned this, this is what kind of sent you into the neuroscientific realm. It pointed you that way. That's, that's exactly when you went right. into your studying. Yeah. Well, that's exactly right, Barb. You um, have read well. Uh, yes, it was at a turning point in my life, a personal uh, time of crisis. I was a single mom uh, thrust into what that means. And those of you who are listening who have ever been single moms or who are single moms know the demands of that situation. And I was really beside myself with pressures. And that's when I encountered the teachings of Mary Eno Burmeister and began to learn them and just practice them for myself and my daughter. Uh, but then, as happened in a very organic way, I began to share that with my friends and with others. And that led to, ultimately, my curiosity about what is really happening when people are holding these sites uh, mm-hmm. And that's what led me to neuroscience. And you actually get more detailed in the bo- book on what this is and where this is, you know, yes. what it's activating. Yeah. Which yes. is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Um, I don't want to go away from this, but I do want to talk about you have someone in the book, Cora, who um, has a... Um, uh, talks about her ancestors all the way back to great grandmother and the and the inflammation and autoimmune and all of that and her insistence that she's going to break this that she's going to break this pattern of generation after generation you want to tell us about cora yes and of course these case studies are based on my experience uh and frequently they merge uh, multiple case studies into one. Uh, but this is a an important one to highlight because so many people are dealing with autoimmune issues. And that's what Cora uh, was confronted with. And it was a tradition of autoimmune suffering in the women in her family. And what Cora noticed was that those same women, uh, grandmothers, aunts, great-grandmothers, her own mother, that not only were they afflicted with this inflammatory autoimmune condition, they also were voiceless, meaning that they didn't protest, they didn't seek to further their own place in life, they didn't follow their curiosity, they didn't enhance their well-being by reaching to places and people outside of their community, they stayed very insulated and isolated and nonverbal, just not invisible, invisible. Yes, invisible. And Cora, who was really a soft spoken person, she wasn't somebody who was aggressive in any way or uh, not by nature, incredibly outspoken, but she did advocate for herself and ultimately for herself and her children. And she decided that she wouldn't surrender to this invisibility and that she felt there was a link between the invisibility and the autoimmune condition. And that's what the case study is about. How 
uh, at this really grassroots level, uh, a woman who refused to accept uh, the invisibility uh, and shaped her coming forward in her own way. It doesn't have to look like one thing is she made it her own and how that shifted her immune system. And there is research to back this up that when particularly, for instance, research about women with breast cancer, that when those women are advocates for themselves, when they seek support groups, when they question their physicians and don't just accept the diagnosis at face value, but uh, fight against the diagnosis by being proactive for themselves, um, there is a significant difference in their mortality. There is a significant difference in their rate of recovery. Uh, and they are more likely to recover. So that was Cora's experience uh, with autoimmune disease in her family. And she's also hell-bent on breaking the possibility that her daughter would would have these ailments, you know, to break exactly. the, the patterns. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's what motivated her was mm -hmm. uh, that her daughter. She, wasn't, she wasn't willing to pass this on to her daughter. Yes. Right. Um, then you had somebody else in there talked about her depression or feeling lost or um, just couldn't find herself kind of. And and um, she went back to her mother who finally opened up. Uh, um, you want to tell us about her? So this case study is really uh, quite a gorgeous one. They all are. Uh, but I resonate deeply with this one because it's, again, about breaking the intergenerational ties of secrecy and hiding. Uh, and I can't underscore this enough that all those many cultures, I come from one where people feel that it's better to not share painful memories or painful experiences because the theory is you would burden somebody else with it. The opposite is true, that there is a great longing to know, particularly on the part of very sensitive people who feel uh, what has not been named. And that's what happened in this case study. And thankfully, uh, in this instance, uh, the mom was forthcoming, even though she had great pain in remembering things that were extremely difficult uh, and that she would have preferred to forget but couldn't, uh, when she conveyed them to her daughter, it broke the spell of her daughter being trapped in her mother's conditions. And this is true all the time. Please, listeners, please take heed that opening up, telling the truth is the best thing we can do for our children. And it, we've come past that we have looking back 50 years, you know, 50 years, 60 years, the generations are so different and, and the mentalities. So the whole 1950s, 1960s, what goes on in this house never leaves the house and you right. don't talk about things. Right. Today's world, I'm not sure myself what today's world is. You know, are we more open? I, I like your other book, I feel like we're just in shell shock. We don't even know how to voice what we feel, I uh, think. This is true. To share it. 
You're, yeah, you're, to share you're, it. You're correct, Barb. Uh, so we are in unprecedented times. Mm -hmm. But the antidote is the same. Uh, we need to come together to find the language. And that's very much a mission of my work is healing in community, how we can come into safe, culturally sensitive and trauma-informed healing in community circles and give voice to what we are experiencing, what we are grieving, and thereby find a way forward. And I speak to this, uh, I have developed uh, an MA and PhD program, which is also a laboratory for training regenerative health practitioners. This is allied with the Planetary Health Lab of the University of Edinburgh, as well as with Ubiquity University. And whether or not you want to get uh, higher education or not, uh, the programs are available that intend to empower regenerative health practices at the grassroots level. And that is available through my website, uh, The Tara Approach, uh, and also through my other organization. Both of these are nonprofit organizations, Climate Change and Consciousness. So I welcome listeners, people who have healing in their hearts, people who have faith in original brilliance, people who are aware that we can make a difference for the children of the future and who need the structure and the guidance to do so, to visit my websites, uh, to gain inspiration from my books, and to take matters into our own hands. And I mean that quite literally. I reference uh, my wonderful colleague, Rebecca Solnit, and her book, Paradise Built in Hell, that really speaks to how at the community level, uh, we can rise up and provide the healthcare that we need. And in fact, that is likely what will have to happen. And it seems daunting. It seems impossible that that's only because uh, that inspiration and that original guidance has been uh, obfuscated in us. Uh, but through the awareness of original brilliance, we come out of that darkness. And you think there's hope, huh? I that do. we'll be able to do this. Yeah. I do, Barb. In, in, in the face of climate change as well, it's as if, you know, we're all uh, just frozen, you know, watching this and, and watching our leaders ignore it. You know, I mean, they'll talk it, but they don't do anything really. That's you know, exactly the fossil right. fuels are, we're still pumping. You know, we're still using it. I mean, we we can't stop using it without having something to go to. And I think there's very easily something to go to if they would bring it forth. But they don't seem to want to. You've named it, Barb. So that's uh, some of our trauma and, and shock and, and just frozen. We're I feel like as people, we're just frozen in, in trauma and shock right now. You have absolutely named it uh, well, Barb, and 
those are the conditions that have caused me to write my books, particularly these new books, The Secret of Resilience, Healing Personal and Planetary Trauma Through Morphogenesis, my book of poetry, uh, The Great Physician, uh, Medicinal Poetry for the Anthropocene, and my previous books, particularly We Are All in Shock. These are rich collections of hands-on as well as consciousness raising resources that are available to everyone everywhere. Can you can you tell us your website again and where we can get hold of you too? And maybe some of your classes that because you talked about the kids, but how about us? I hate to bring it back. <laughs> how about us? We've got to be healthy too. <laughs> Absolutely. We have to be grounded and organized because our children anchor in us. So the best place to make it simple is the Tara approach, www.tara, T-A-R-A hyphen approach.org. Okay, great. And what classes do you have coming up? Well, the most uh, proximal class coming up in just a couple of weeks is about the rediscovery, which is this template that I described at the beginning of our conversation for accessing early memory. So this is very much a class that speaks to what you just mentioned, Barb, which is what about us? It's a class <laughs> that will be a way for the individuals who participate to come to a clear, somatic, embodied awareness of their own original brilliance, their own unique gifts for this unprecedented time that we inhabit. So that's the rediscovery. Uh, and you'll find that on my website. And then that follows a series uh, of class. We'll follow that uh, classes, uh, which are part of the MA and PhD program, uh, which includes individual classes that you can take, even if you're not aiming for a degree. Uh, including the introduction to regenerative health, the introduction to the Tara approach. Those classes are all listed now on my website. Oh, and I have a free gift for everyone. Uh, oh, that's right. We almost forgot. Free yeah, gift. <laughs> the free gift gives you a little mini version of the self-care applications that you can use that stimulate this awakening to original brilliance. And uh, we'll provide a link uh, where you can find that free gift uh, on my website. Okay, good. Do they have to put in anything to find that or they just come to your website and it's there? Just, yeah, it'll just be obvious on the website. That's fabulous. Dr. Stephanie Mines, thank you so much for being on. You've been a wealth of information. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, I love talking to you, Barb. Let's do this again. I'd love to. Thanks. Bye-bye okay. for now. Thank you for joining us for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Barb Crowley, next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoy your upcoming weekend.